Jean Chen has played a vital role for countless documentary makers behind the scenes. Now it's time for her story. I'm Tom Powers, and this is Pure Nonfiction. Jean Chen has worked as a documentary editor for over 30 years, with directors such as Orlando Bagwell, Barbara Koppel, and Roger Ross Williams. She's been a mentor to emerging filmmakers, not only in the U.S., but also in China and Taiwan, where she spent her early years. Jean has also moved into producing. Her latest project is 76 Days, set in Wuhan, China, during the city's lockdown for COVID-19. The film was directed by Hao Wu, Weishan Chen, and a third collaborator who's anonymous. It's now shortlisted for the Oscars Documentary Award. Last year, the Doc NYC Festival honored Jean for her lifetime achievement. Filmmakers shared memories of how Jean has touched their lives. Nanfu Wan described the making of her first film, Hooligan Sparrow, about a Chinese dissident. And Jean asked me what my plan was about Hooligan Sparrow. I had just finished and premiered it. And she asked me if I had any plans of releasing the film in theaters. I had no theatrical distributor and I did not know how to do it. I had no money and no resources. So I told her, no, I, I didn't plan to do anything. And then in the middle of the night, I got an email notification from my physical sponsor account. Somebody had donated $1,000 to the account and it was Jin. I was very, very surprised, not because of the money, but because of the faith that she had in the film and how much she believed in me and in the film. What Jin did that night changed the trajectory of my career. I have my own Jean stories. In the year 2000, I was directing a documentary and looking for an editor. I only knew Jean by reputation. I reached her on the phone, and she bluntly told me my rate was too low. For most editors, that would be the end of the call. But she stayed on the line and opened her contact list, sharing dozens of candidates who might want the job and giving her candid advice on their strengths and weaknesses. My next encounter with Jean came seven years later. I was one year into my job programming at the Toronto International Film Festival. Our team had selected a documentary from China called Please Vote For Me that stood out for its sense of humor and brisk pacing. The director, Wei Jun Chen, couldn't travel to Toronto, but Jean was the editor, and I asked if she would do the Q&A. She professed to have a fear of public speaking, but I always knew her to be talkative, so I didn't take no for an answer. Indeed, when she got on stage, she was great, and I invited her back to TIFF when she edited Wei Jun Chen's next film, The Biggest Chinese Restaurant in the World. I came to understand that Jean wasn't kidding. Later in the podcast, we talk about her fear of public speaking. The thing is, Jean has stories. She recently said to me, Did I ever tell you how my father helped invent General Tao's chicken? Let's start there. March 31st, 1972, I was 11 years old, and that was the day I left Taiwan. If you've seen um, My Farewell, the, the Lulu Wang's film, you know, yeah. there was a scene where grandma, you know, when she's in the taxi, where grandma's image was in the far distance. 
that was my image when I had to say goodbye to my grandparents. Yeah. So, so that was the beginning of my immigration. My, that was the beginning of becoming American, right? And so we moved to the Bronx first. And it was, it was a cold winter, actually. That was a cold winter, I remember. And my first impression was, okay, let me just tell you, actually. So my father actually left Taiwan in 1967. He went bankrupt. He had a plastic business. He went bankrupt. So he first went to Canada for the World Expo and got a job as a restaurant worker, washing dishes in Montreal. Then he went across border and got a special, well, Chinese cook was one of those specialties. So, gotcha. he, so he got his green card through Chinese cook. Basically, you know, he had to learn from scratch. And so- He, he wasn't a cook, he was a businessman who learned how to cook to, to get this visa. Exactly. And yeah, also he went bankrupt, so he had to start from scratch. So he started as a, he washed dishes in Canada. And then he came over as a Chinese cook, which I knew he wasn't the, you know, a professional one. Then he ended up working in Chinese restaurant in New Jersey first, actually. Um, so in the 1970s, I was in high school. He had, my father and his friends started the biggest Chinese restaurant in the Bronx, Peking Garden, 1975. It lasted two years. It was 200 seats. But, you know, in the 70s, I remember there were times they were blackmailed by the mafias. <laughs> I remember he was getting phone calls, say, put cash in the soda can and put it in certain telephone booth. And, <laughs> you know, and there were times actually my mom would freaked out, you know, the immigration officer would come and just randomly come and took a couple of the undocumented restaurant workers. So yeah. it was really tough. It was tough times in the 70s in the Bronx. Gene's father went on to become a chef at Peng's restaurant in Midtown Manhattan. Mr. Peng had been the banquet chef for China's nationalist leader, Chiang Kai-shek. Mr. Peng opened a restaurant on 44th Street. It was one of those first high-end Chinese restaurants. And so my father was the chef and my mom was the cashier. And my brother worked as busboy and then waiter. And I ended up in the coat room. On weekends, <laughs> I was making great tips. <laughs> In the 1970s, I was making $100 a day just with tips. That's amazing. That shows you how high end the restaurant was. You know, I have never eaten General Tao chicken until after my father passed away hmm. in 2001. Because I, he never cooked General Tao chicken at home. And was only when I saw the documentary uh, in search of General Tao chicken, they mentioned um, Chef Peng. And I told that to my brother and my brother told me the story. You, he was there in the afternoon when there was no customers, you know, during the Mahjong games. And so my father being the top chef of Mr. Peng's restaurant, they were figuring out what, how to cater to American palate. So sugar was added. And also, if you think of General Tao chicken, it probably is probably the worst fat. It was so fattening. It's dark <laughs> meat. 
you know, the Americans don't like to eat um, dark meat. They mainly like use the chicken breast. So with all this leftover and, you know, it's like a chicken nugget. <laughs> and right. It was fried. It was sweet. It was spicy. It's and so my brother was there. Then we're actually testing out the different sauce. <laughs> and I never I didn't even know that existed until years later. General Tao Chicken. So your dad was there at the beginning in the he kitchen. Was, yes, he was there at the very beginning. Jean went to New York's High School of Music, Art and Performing Arts. She was interested in photography and got into NYU Film School. Her teacher, Paul Barnes, got her excited about editing. She went to work as an assistant to the filmmaker Sally Menke. I asked Jean what got her interested in documentaries. I have watched one short film called Sewing Woman by Arthur Dong. I think that was 1983. I went to a film festival. I saw a 30-minute short called Sewing Woman, and that story blew me away. That was the first time I really watched a documentary. And, but I have to say it was 1987, um, you know, Eyes on the Prize was showing on television. Mm -hmm. You know, the, we, this is 1980s. You know, we still have to watch tele, television with no tape recorder at the time. And that was real, that, that blew me away. That series just blew me away. And just, I didn't even know about civil rights movement. I didn't learn it in school. And, so in 1992, when Orlando Bagwell was looking for an editor for Malcolm X Make a Plane, he called me for an interview. That was the first time I actually went on an interview as an editor. And I didn't think I had a chance. You know, I didn't have any portfolio at the time. I was still, I was an assistant editor for seven years. You know, after Sally Mankey, I worked with Larry Silk. And I was an assistant for a long time. So so when I went on an interview with Orlando, he first asked me, so what do you know about Malcolm X? And I only bought the book like the night before. And I only <laughs> had a chance, I only had time to reach chapter one. And I told him, honestly, I say, I just read chapter one. I really love the story. And the look on his face was like, okay, this there's not much to say. I, I thought that the interview was really over, like was within the first minutes. He clicked, I remember this so well, he closed his binder. He had some, he was gonna write some notes <laughs> and he just closed his binder and just, I, I, I remember so well, he crossed his legs and just asked me, so what do you do about race issue in America? And I just say, well, if everyone's like me, I went to like a, uh, a colorblind high school. And if everyone thinks like I do, there would be no problem. And he was just, okay, I don't think, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think she's right for me. And then the, she's, I could tell he still has about 20 minutes to kill until probably the next uh, candidate comes in. And then he just asked me, so tell me a film you liked. And I wasn't that you know, I, I didn't watch that many films. So all I talked about was that 13 minute short film, Sewing Woman, who, that made an impact on me. And we talked for hour, literally. And years later, he told me, I hire you not because of your skill set, but because your passion for storytelling. And that says a lot about Orlando Bagwell. 
you know, had he had this trust at, at a newbie, someone with no reels, no, no, no experience. And so what did you learn uh, cutting that first film? Well, I think the most important lesson I learned from working on Malcolm X Make a Plane was I learned to trust my instinct. Um, also, that was the first time I learned the importance of confidence for an editor. Hmm. Um, because actually, so when I assembled a film together and we had an 11-hour assembly screening with the crew, everybody was just so happy, was, was loving it. Then once we put in all the archival in, when I had a four-hour rough cut, the film started feeling really flat. And to the point, actually, um, I, I also learned this later that I was on the verge of getting fired by the management because the film just was not working. It, it, the film wasn't working for a long time. And executive, the executive producer from American Experience was Judith Crichton. Mm -hmm. She taught me one of the biggest lessons. And so she came in and one day and said to Orlando and me, and just, he just, she just said, just figure out the first 30 minutes of the film. And everybody just, you know, there were a lot of cooks in the kitchen that, that, you know, so she said, just figure out the, the first 30 minutes. And I really just, it was me and Orlando in a room. A month later, I realized I can't start the film chronologically. It's from, from cradle to, to grave. It's just too predictable. So I actually, started the film with the highest, the most emotional point of Malcolm X was actually the LA um, killing of one of the Muslim brothers. It, there was a fiery speech and I just started the film with that. Who taught you to hate your own kind? Who taught you to hate the race that you belong to? So much so that you don't want to be around each other. No, before you come asking Mr. Muhammad, does he teach hate? You should ask yourself who taught you to hate being what God gave you. I also uh, had a lot of beautiful faces of just the, you know, present day faces at, in the opening. And a month later, Judith Crichton came back and we all sat in the old steam bag. You know, she was sitting right next to me and I just thought the film and you know, at that time, 30 minutes, a reel is 30 minutes long, 16 millimeter. So I stopped and then she just looked at me and gave me the biggest smile. And that smile is to this day, she gave me the confidence I needed it. Hmm. And then we took the rough cut to a Flaherty Film Festival shortly after that. And we had a standing ovation. And I, that standing ovation, standing ovation for me was just, it was the biggest uh, confidence boost. And ever since, I, I always tell people, you got to learn your, you got to learn your own voice. You got to find your own voice and you got to use it. And the confidence is really the most important thing I learned from that film. And also I made the best friend to this day, you know, it really is. You know, every film, I think it's about trust and also building relationship. And I've been in it for 30 some years now. So, so I have a lot of great friends and that's the biggest blessing of working in documentary for me. 
Now Jean is the one taking a chance on younger talent. Over the years, she's worked closely with the organization CNEX, founded by Ben Sian in Taiwan, to help fund projects from the region like Plastic China, for which Jean was the editor. So I have to talk about CNEX. Um, ben Tian, I met him at Hot Dots, uh, I guess 2008. And he told me about, you know, this organization in Taiwan and China, they provide a, a pitching forum for emerging filmmakers. So I went the second year and that was the first time I actually had real contact with Chinese filmmakers. And I was really happy that I was able to help them. It, and one thing I also learned as a film editor is Chinese filmmakers have a very distinct style. Their pace is totally different. I didn't know I was an American film editor until I took Please Vote For Me to Hungary. I remember an audience say, this is an American paced film, but it's a Chinese film. So I, I guess later on when I, when I say I want to like bridge the, the culture, I, I love to kind of speed up the pace a little bit. You right, say. right. For the Chinese filmmakers, as you also, you, you I'm sure you know, you uh, we talked about this. There was one time um, we submitted a Chinese film to Toronto and you say, uh, it's a little slow, it's a little long. <laughs> and, you know, it's how do you come to, it, it's a difficult um, things to talk about because I learned not to um, invade my sensitivity on the Chinese filmmaker now. I actually learned that um, because everybody's different. You have to let it be. It, I mean, it is so tough because, you know, there are times when I watch films, not only from China, but other parts of the world, but China is a good example. And, um, you know, it can be, they can be long, they can be slow. And there are probably some audiences uh, in Toronto and New York that I program for who would be willing to go along with that. But I know there are a lot more audiences who aren't going to be um, along for that ride. And, uh, and it's a conundrum, like whether to give feedback to suggest to people that, you know, if this is an audience they want to reach, that um, they should uh, think about the pacing differently or to, you know, back off and, you know, let them make the film they want to make. And, you know, it, I mean, is it a form of cultural imperialism to, you know, to tell people to speed up their films? Totally. And this is why there are different festivals, likes different kind of films. And I love Petition. It's like a 10-hour film, I think. Right. Right? I love, I thought that was one of the best films came out of China. It was 10 hours. But it's just so when I work with a Chinese filmmakers, they have to be ready that I'm going to kind of bring my Western sensitivity to their film. And that happened with Plastic China, I think. I didn't purposely seek out a Chinese filmmaker to mentor them. It's karma. I think it's fate. I, I, I believe in that, you know, when, when the stars align, we just work together. Like um, recently, Our Time Machine. That's another example. 
is just a beautiful, actually that film, I really want to help uh, Sun Yang, a 26 year old filmmaker who has this beautiful film about a father who has Alzheimer and the son trying to, uh, you know, how, how to reconnect with his father through a puppet theater, a puppet show, um, a play. Um, so I really reached out to him and took four years, but it, and then actually Leo Chang also came on as the co-director, producer, and we really want to, you know, help the, the Chinese filmmaker because they have so little resource. If you really <laughs> think about the independent filmmakers, I'm not talking about the government backing filmmaker, the independent filmmakers are, in China are really difficult to, to, to make a living. Hao Wu is among the Chinese filmmakers who reached out to Gene for help. Hao grew up in China, went to university in the U.S., and returned to China to work in the tech industry. Hao was interested in stories that could help bridge the cultural divide between the East and the West. He learned that Beijing's leading drama school was undertaking its first production of a Broadway musical, Fame. Hao took a camera to document the lives of the theater students for his film, The Road to Fame. So Hal um, came to me uh, about 10 years ago with his film, The Road to Fame. At that time, he was still working in Alibaba. So Hal, he has a couple prior career. He was a microbiologist, turned MBA. And so, so when he came to me with his Road to Fame, I didn't really take him that seriously. You know, I said, okay, here's just someone who want to dabble in documentary when he has a great some tech job. guy, right? Yeah. Some, some tech guy. I, I also thought he was rich and it turned out he wasn't. Um, so the road to fame, he came to me and another reason why I actually say no at the beginning, because I went to high school of music and art was actually where the original movie was shot. Well, the performing oh, right. arts <laughs> and all, most of my classmates were in the movie as extras, you know, so fame is a very touchy subject for me. And so I actually recommend the other editors, but so there was one day, okay, the reason I actually finally say yes to Hao, um, we went to Taiwan, the, C the CNX Chinese Documentary Forum. So I was sitting in the audience as an observer watching how we pitching the road to fame to both the East and the West commission editors. And after three minutes, the trailer was shown. How actually went to Orlando first. Orlando was at Four Foundation at the time. And Orlando just loved the trailer, was very positive. And I remember uh, ITVS was there, Sundance was there. Everybody loved it from the West. And then when um, the moderator went to the China side, they not only they didn't like it, they were kind of, you know, looking down at insulting. And so that moment I was sitting there, I'm looking at the to such an extreme reaction to a trailer. I decided I want to take on as a challenge to myself, see if I can help him. I, I actually want to edit for him. I want to see what can I do to bring the two cultures together, or maybe not all the way. And so, and Hal was very smart. 
he invited me to go to Beijing. He said, come to Beijing. I will show you the outtakes. And he, he flew me business class for two hours. <laughs> and he won and dined, you know. And, 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 and then I watched the outtakes and I say, wow, he, I think he missed the story. He was telling me, the way he described to me, this is a film about the making of the musical in China. It's all about the musical. But what I saw really is the, you know, the one child, the, the result of the one child policy, the parents, the society. That I, I, once I saw the outtakes, I say, wow, there's something I can work with. And that was the beginning of my collaboration with Howe. And so for, for people who haven't seen the film, what really comes through is you've got this generation of young people uh, who are in the film, who are pursuing these arts careers. Uh, but they have so much pressure on them because they're 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 kids, or they're they're the only kid of their parents. Uh, so they have they're carrying all this generational expectation. Yes, and so I you know so I edit for him, and actually that was um, Tom. I say, well, how? Why don't you be my assistant? Like you know the material. You we just work together, and there were times like. I'll take stuff. This is, this happens with a lot of first-time filmmakers that you fall in love with shots and scenes. And I would take stuff, shots out, and how it keeps putting back, back and back and forth. And it was really frustrating. You know, there's a times I say, I quit. I, you know, I just, I couldn't take it anymore. But he always, we always actually, you know, when we disagree, there's, oh, I also learn over the years, this, I'm not always right, right? <laughs> it, it, I, I'm, I'm actually very open-minded. When someone, you know, points out something, why is he keep putting it back? Then, you know, I think the, the end result is always something better than individuals. This is why I love collaboration. Even through arguments, it's always something better come, come out of it. Gene was an executive producer for Howe's next two films, The People's Republic of Desire, and his Netflix short, All in My Family. Then last year, How came to Gene with a new project. He had been in Shanghai on January 23rd when the city of Wuhan went into lockdown. He made contact with videographers in Wuhan and established a system to receive their footage. He returned to the United States and began editing the footage under quarantine, living with his in-laws in Atlanta. 76 days takes place largely inside hospitals as medical workers struggle to cope with the virus when so little is understood about it. So last April, um, I knew how was working on something um, on the COVID film. I didn't know what he was doing. And then he said, you know, I have something I want to show you. At that time, he was already in Atlanta in the lockdown. And he showed me three scenes, the opening scenes where the nurse lost his father and couldn't say goodbye to him. And the second scene was the baby being born to a mom who has COVID. So, you know, they had to be separated. And the final scene with another head nurse giving the ID back to the daughter of the deceased. I would only watch these three scenes and I, I say, how you have something really special. 
but he said to me, um, we have no money and he doesn't even have the licensing at the time. He was, it, for me, it was kind of just experimenting. But, you know, we were in COVID time and I say, you have, you know, you're down in Atlanta, you have nothing to do, keep editing. Hal has become a really great editor over the years that, you know, I work with him. And I say, just keep working. And also, you know, he just recently lost his grandpa. And I knew that he was in great grief and also in guilt that he can go back. Both his parents has cancer. Mm -hmm. So it was a really tough time for Hal. And all I can do as a big sister is just encourage him. But in my heart, I saw something so special. Um, even though we can't see any of the face, the, the eyes of the people, everybody's in you know PPP suits, yeah. in hazmat suits, but it's it touched me so deeply. And I just encourage him in April, I said, just keep doing it. So he keeps sending me scenes and we discuss scenes. In two months, he had the whole film assembled in June. And I said, wow, what are we gonna do with this film? I think there's a film already made, but we have no money. No, we, I don't have any streamers. You know, everybody at that time, we knew everybody's making their own film. So I, I know I have a great film in my hand, but I didn't know what to do. So what did I do? I sent it to you, Tom. 76 Days premiered at the Toronto Film Festival in September. Its deep empathy for Wuhan citizens was a stark contrast to the American xenophobia expressed by President Trump with his phrase, Kung Flu. The film was acquired for distribution by MTV Documentary Films. Now, let's get back to Jean's fear of public speaking. I should explain that when I asked her for this interview, her first answer was no. You know, please vote for me. I remember meeting you in Toronto. My legs, my knees was knocking. I was shaking. As an editor, I don't like to be in public speaking. But you always put me in the, <laughs> how do I say, you, you take, you always take me out of my comfort zone. And you know what? It's so important. Do, do you, do you have a sense of like where that comes from? Oh, yes. I actually, two, I, I learned, okay. When I was six years old, when I was in kindergarten, um, okay, this is growing up in, in Taiwan, right? So I was the youngest of three and I never went to daycare. I only go to kindergarten when my grandma goes to the market. She'll take, she'll take me to the, when she goes shopping the market, she'll take me and drop me off in the kindergarten. And when she's finished, she'll, she'll take me out of the kindergarten. So I have no education, like preschool. And I remember when I got in, I think I was five years old, I had to, in the kindergarten, every day the teacher pick a, a kid to count how many kids in the classroom. I counted eight and I couldn't go on. I didn't know how to count. And I was, I was stuck. And I remember the humiliation. Mm. You know, and, and that's probably the public speaking. I, I actually learned that a few years ago. I said, why, where did that fear come from? That was the first time I feel I was humiliated in public. And the teacher still gave me, you know, we wear the banner and I still wear the banner, the class monitor, but I couldn't count. And 
this is actually, I start uh, telling people, Ken Burns one time asked, how many years have I been in this country? And I said, why did he ask that? And he just want to know why, how come I don't speak like he does? And this is why I was very self-conscious. And that, mm-hmm. I was an AE at the time. That was 1986-87. So I was very self-conscious, but amongst my friends, I'm fine. Gene, we're just among friends here. I want to thank you for saying yes to me one more time.76daysisnowstreaming on virtualtheaters.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com.com